component. So we're coming in the last Sunday on series of the Christian Atheist. And um, it's, it's been, uh, it's an interesting series. It's based on a book. Is it going in and out again? Well, I'm going to keep speaking, and I'm going to trust these guys to give me a mic if it keeps going in. Okay. Okay, I'll stay on this side. Sorry, I'll stay on this side. Keep moving. Oh. <laughs> I didn't move. I just... <laughs> Do we have a handheld or something? Today I am going to take some elements and actually just kind of refer them to you through me that I think are really important in the book. Um, but, I mean, this whole journey, um, I hope, has been uh, challenging for you uh, to, to just kind of sit back and think, you know, I'm a follower of God, I believe in God, but do I act as if he's just not there? In fact, I, I take his comment a little bit further than that. I would say that um, it's not that we don't have God around us, or we don't believe that he's not here. We do believe that he's here, but we treat him almost like a mannequin of sorts, right? He is there. He uh, is kind of conformed in our image. And we'll only come back to him and dress him how we please. But for the most part, he's kind of invisible behind a window. Um, Craig Rachel makes this comment. He says, you know, God created us in his image, but we've returned the favor and created him in ours. Uh, I am going to take this off. That's not chopping that off. I think that's on. Um, yeah, so God created us in his image, but we've gone ahead and returned the favor and created him in our image. And we see this in so many ways in the way we um, portray him. You know, think about love. How do we define love? Or how we feel? Or how we think it is? But do we define it by the way God sees it? 
Adventist like God is love. Um, forgiveness. So many things around us that we kind of put our own spin on it and kind of create God into our own image. Now, there's this fascinating thing. At the end of his book, he, he ends his book on this um, thing that he calls third-line followers or third-line believers. And his challenge to all of us is to become what he calls third-line believers. You see, most of us, or he says a lot of us, are basically what we call first-line believers. And the way he defines it is this way. He says, I believe in God and the gospel of Jesus just enough to benefit from it. And we can see this in the Bible in Luke chapter 17, where, where Jesus is walking towards the temple and there's a group, about 10 lepers on the side of the road. They're calling out to him, Jesus, Son of God, you can, you can heal us. Please, you're the Messiah. Heal us. And he turns around and heals them. Nine of them go on about their own lives. One of them comes back and thanks him. And a lot of us are kind of like those nine. We benefit from following Jesus and then get on with our lives. Um, that's what we call first-line believers. We want the benefits without changing how we live. Anyone know any first-line believers? You think of yourselves as a first-line believer. It's really challenging. From week one, I said this in James chapter 2, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You believe in Jesus, great. But like I said in that same sermon, there's a big difference between believing in Jesus and following Jesus. There's a huge difference. I think for many of us, it might actually be really easy to believe in Jesus because we fell for that, I don't know, view that all I need to do is believe and I am now saved and I'm done. It's one of the reasons why so many theologians struggle with the book of James. Because we don't believe in a works-based faith. It's all about grace. We can't do anything to be saved. Yet, if we are saved, by definition, we're changed. It's like that, what Peter Scacera says in his book, um, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I've been a Christian for 22 years, but instead of being a 22-year-old Christian, I've been a one-year-old Christian 22 times. I get the believing part, just not into the whole following part. And he makes some really difficult comments in his book, like, do we think that's truly what a Christian is? Are we in a position to be able to judge somebody, to say, are you really a Christian being a first-line follower? And he goes into quite a bit of wrestling around how do we, how do we encourage people to go from the first line to the second line. He goes on to say, the problem is many of us who claim to be followers of Jesus are not that much different from what we were before we met Jesus. It's like we've met someone in a cafe and we've just gone on with our lives. We know of their existence, but our lives are not truly changed from it. We just get on with it. How do we help 
people move on from this space. Because many of us are actually, I think, we're in this kind of second line. I would count myself sometimes, or most times, in the second line. Always in the middle, huh? Second line is this, I believe in God and the gospel of Jesus enough to contribute comfortably. In Matthew chapter 19, the rich man comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do to get eternal life? You know, I've done everything you've told me to do. I've followed the law, I've done everything. And then Jesus says, well, sell everything and come follow me. Get rid of everything you own and come and follow me. Why he says it to this guy, and he doesn't say it really to anybody else, I don't know. But he says it to this guy, and he says, get rid of everything. And then there's this really pointed point in the, in the passage where Matthew just says this guy walks away saddened, head down. And I think any one of us, if you read that passage, you think you want to run after the guy and say, look, mate, we'll work something out. But Jesus doesn't. Instead, he turns around and uses him as an example and says it's just as easy for a rich man to get to heaven as a camel can get through the eye of a needle. In other words, not real easy at all. We'll give back so long as it doesn't cost too much. The challenge for those of us in this second line is we want to, but only so much. Would I give up my child? Would I be an Abraham and lay my own child on the altar? Oh, that's just figurative, right? He doesn't really want us to do that. When Jesus says, I want you to carry your cross, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a burden, I'll carry that, but actually it means you're prepared to die. Oh, yeah, I don't know. And many of us who live in the second line, well, that's when <laughs> we kind of pick and choose how we want to live our Christianity. We, 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 we pick the churches that, are, that, that speak our language, that make us feel good. We go to places that we feel comfortable in. And the small churches down on the corner of the side of the road are not the pleasant places to be in because, well, they're dead. And we want to go to places where our children can thrive. Sure, introduce them to consumerism at that young age. How well is that going to do when it comes to following someone who tells you to give everything up? C.S. Lewis, when he talks about this, I use this in week six, when we're talking about forgiveness. Second line Christians do not necessarily like the concept of forgiveness. Second line Christians don't want to have to rustle things too much. You know, the whole idea of having to, to, to go back and, and revisit those old things. No, we don't want to deal with that. Come on, you Māori, get over yourselves. That was centuries ago. I've got nothing to do with it. Move on. 
This is what C.S. Lewis said. We have a strange illusion that mere time cancels sin. I've heard others and I've heard myself recounting cruelties and falsehoods committed in boyhood as if they're of no concern to the present speakers and even with laughter. But mere time does not either does nothing either to the fact or to the guilt of a sin. The guilt is washed out not by time, but by repentance and the blood of Christ. And we don't want to rock the boat as second line believers. Don't talk to me about money, Rob. Don't challenge me, Rob. I've had a hard enough week as it is. I'm not up to this, Rob. Craig Rochelle writes, he says, there's a great irony in the country where I live. Printed across the back of an American dollar bill are the words, in God we trust. Yet for most of us, that motto simply is not true. We might say that we trust in God, but our actions really show what's really going on. The challenge of second-line believers is how do you make that next step into giving your all the one that you follow? I mean, I think sometimes some of us give more to our football teams, hobbies, our families. We like the idea of God being number one in our lives, but it's just too difficult. It's just too hard. Third-line believers, and this is a space where Craig in his book spends the most of his time, and where he says, this is where we should be living. They give their whole life to Jesus, their whole life to Jesus, daily. So as he's reading this, I don't know about you, but I started to feel a little bit convicted. I remember this past week, or maybe it was the week before, the week before I had this bit of an argument with Andrew Bennett. It wasn't an argument, it was a, it was a healthy, heated debate about what's healthy in, in giving. Not, not, not money, just your time, effort, and all of this. And he and I got angrier and angrier, not at each other, but at ourselves and how much we've given. He talks about the troubles that he had, you know, giving to this church and sticking it out for so long when he could have walked away so many times. I've told him of the troubles that I've had and my kids have to live with, knowing that their dads are past and the people in their church. Hate's going out with this too now. Woohoo, it's not just me. Um, how much they've struggled seeing what people call church and how they react and how they treat. And at the end of it, we both kind of looked at each other sheepishly. Is it worth it? Absolutely not. Absolutely. Would you change it? In my mind, I want to change it. But Jesus never said being a follower of his was going to be easy. And we use those passages. I know what the plans are for you, says the Lord. The plans to, to, to make you thrive and be. And, you know, it's Jeremiah writing that. Jeremiah, 
is called the weeping prophet. He never saw any good in his lifetime. People just shunned him and then murdered him at the end. But his eyes weren't cast on this life. His eyes were cast to heaven. And he manages to write passages like that that we still quote today that are absolutely amazing. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? And the question of God is, am I, or are we, willing to lose our lives over this? Are we? Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And are we willing to sacrifice your desires, our hopes, our dreams? Are we willing to sacrifice all of that for Jesus? In Acts 20.24, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So are we willing to do only what Christ wants us to do? And then in Philippians 3, 7, what is more, I consider myself a loss because it's the passing, passing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. We swear at that point. In that point, we translate it as garbage. It's worse than that. He says, I consider it all worth nothing, garbage, that I may gain Christ. Is Jesus my greatest possession? Is he my all in all? Is he a mannequin that I keep in the window? For some of us, social issues are all we fight for. If we put as much energy into fighting any kind of anti-abortion plan, if we fight in any kind of way against war and hatred and poverty, if we use that same energy in sharing the love, the salvation we find in Jesus Christ, how different would the world be? How different would it be if we use that energy rather than to fight politics to share the love of Jesus Christ? We too, I said, we need to see with gospel eyes, we need to speak with gospel words, and we need to live gospel lives. Now, please don't hear me saying that I've got it and I'm going to tell you how it's going to be because this is as hard for me as it is maybe for you guys hearing this. And I was struggling last night. I was sitting down. I said, Lord, I, you know, I'm sitting in bed. Monica, no, Monica, Jenna, Bella and I. <laughs> she hasn't been around for two months and I've transposed Bella into Monica. Gosh. Um, we, we've decided to just kind of watch some 80, old 80s movies and we watched last night Romancing the Stone and it was this old 80s movie with Michael Douglas and, and it's just fun to watch 
And I went, I said, no, we can't watch anything else after this. I've got to go and just kind of eyeball of my, my sermon. I'm sitting there and it's, you know, you see this guy going on this adventure and he's just so fixated on getting this, this treasure. So fixated that he's willing to wrestle a crocodile. He's willing to leave the love of his life to get this treasure. And I'm sitting in bed and I'm thinking, God, I'm not sure I'm willing to do that for you. In fact, I don't even think it's worth it anymore. Look at where the world is at, Lord. And so I get distracted and I get frustrated as I'm trying to read through the sermon that I'm going to preach to you this morning. And an email comes through at that moment. I follow Nick Haig, who's an Australian musician. And a few years ago, his son tragically died, age 15. And, um, yeah, I've got to wear glasses, believe it or not. Um, his son tragically died. Nick Cave is kind of one of the guys that left, led the goth scene in the 80s. Just an angry guy, uh, saying a lot about death and murder, and, you know, just drove the underground. We all loved him. The long black hair and quite pale. And for many, many years, this guy, kind of musician, poet that we all, well, not all, most of us who didn't really want to say it out loud in a church, but kind of like this guy. And then his son dies, and he has this moment where he discovers what he calls the beauty of humanity. And where he has this epiphany that there just must, there has to be a God. There has to be. And so what he started at that point was this thing called the Red Hand Files, where he got his, um, his you know, followers, I guess, or, or his fans, they could just write any kind of question to him, and he'll answer it as best as he can. So he started this blog with all these questions. And this has been going on for a few years now. And every once in a while, it'll pop up on my news or on my email, because I've subscribed to it. And as I was sitting there complaining to God, this email came through, and I thought, I need to read this to you. The question was this. Following the last few years, I'm feeling empty and more cynical than ever. I'm losing faith in other people, and I'm scared to pass these feelings on to my little son. Do you still believe in human beings? What a question, huh? His response is this, you are right to be worried about your growing feelings of cynicism. You need to take action to protect yourself and those around you, especially your child. Cynicism is not a neutral position, and although it asks almost nothing of us, it is highly infectious and unbelievably destructive. In my view, it is the most common and easy of all evils. I know this because much of my early life was spent holding the world and the people in it in contempt. It was a position both seductive and indulgent. The truth is, I was young, and I had no idea what was coming down the line. I didn't know. I lacked the knowledge, the foresight, the self-awareness. It took a devastation to teach me the preciousness of life and the essential goodness of people. It took a devastation to reveal the precariousness of the world 
of its very soul to understand that it was crying out for help. It took a devastation to understand the idea of mental value. And it took devastation to find hope. Unlike cynicism, hope is hard-earned, makes demands on us. It can often feel like the most indefensible and lonely place on earth. Hope is not neutral either. It's adversarial. It is the warrior motion that can lay waste to cynicism. Each redemptive, loving act keeps the devil down in the hole. It says the world and its inhabitants have value and are worth defending. And it says the world is worth believing in. And in time, I hope that you come to find it yourself. I want to take it a step further. For God so loved the world in all its brokenness, in all of its idiocy, its hard-headedness, its stupidity. He loved it so much that there was only one thing he could do and give everything up for it. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done. And he calls us to do the same. Isn't that amazing? We can build the best houses. We can build the best resumes. We can build our bodies to look physically amazing. But at the end of the day, what does it all mean? The hope that we have in Jesus Christ lives in you and in me. And this world is desperate for this help. What are we going to do about it? Let's stop living as though Jesus is some mannequin in the corner of our lives. That he lives in us. And that he is everything to us. Amen? I'm taking four weeks off, and in part because I'm becoming cynical. And in part reading that, I could have wrote that question. And I'm thinking, I'm not in a good space. Because when I read Nick Cave, with no theological degree, who most probably doesn't even read his Bible every day, why aren't I responding that way? Oh, Jesus. Oh, gosh, that's a great question. I challenge you as you go out this week, what ways can you change to be more of a third-line leader that gives his all, gives her all for Jesus. What can you do? What steps can you take? And don't do it on your own. Jesus didn't give this to do on our own. Remember last week we talked about the church. <laughs> and some of us are still like the apostles, kind of standing there looking up to heaven going, Jesus, uh, what do we do now? And the angel come along, showing us along, go, you know what to do now. Go do it together. What does a church look like post-Omicron? It's the same church that looked pre-Omicron. Jesus-filled, 
Jesus' purpose. Jesus' hope. Amen? Amen. Ask the music team to come up. This last Thursday, it was six years I was in this place. The parole officer didn't let me off. <laughs> they, um, I was supposed to start April 1st, but I forced myself to come in a day before because I just didn't want to start on April Fool's Day. And look, you know, we can look back and think of all of the horrible things that have happened. We can look back and think of all these things that just make us look at the world and think, what in the world is going on? And some of us might even be thinking, where are you, God? Look to the cross. Guess what? That cross is empty. Jesus is not on it. It's a testimony of hope, the salvation we have in him. I think it's time for us, church, to build about that hope. Amen. May God bless you. Father, as we come before you today, I <laughs> bless us, Lord. We see what's going on in the world, and it's hard not to get caught into it. It's not hard not to just look out there and think, what is this? What's going on? Everything going on. But we know that you're above it all. But we have a responsibility. You gave everything for us. Help us, Lord. Help us to let go. Stand. Yeah.